Uh, good afternoon to everyone. Welcome to another of the uh, Sunday afternoon talks. And uh, today the theme is, uh, is the Buddha's teaching able to solve all problems in life? So I'll offer a few reflections on that theme. Um, and uh, the uh, structure of these uh, Sunday afternoon sessions is uh, the Dhamma teachings are offered for about an hour, and then we have a time for a tea break and uh, some refreshment, and then gather back after 20 minutes for some questions and a Dhamma discussion. So uh, that'll be the, the structure for the afternoon. So in terms of, of this question, uh, is the Buddha's teaching... Yeah, please. Yeah, the, the seating arrangement's a little bit strange, um, so the folks are kind of hidden in behind the chairs there, but uh, do, uh, do find spots where people can sit and can see and hear clearly. So this, uh, this theme for today, um, is the Buddha's teaching able to solve all of life's problems? I would say that looking at the, the theme, I would say the short answer is yes and no probably <laughs> covers the whole topic <laughs> yes and no um, and I would say it depends on what we mean by the Buddha's teachings it depends on what we mean by solving and it depends on what we mean by a problem so I thought maybe to ex explore those um, uh, particular uh, words first of all so uh, the uh, the issue of what is a problem. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, when I was living in uh, a Bhayagiri monastery in California, we had a visit from Lumpur Liam, who's the, the abbot of uh, our main monastery in Thailand and was the, the person so, uh, chosen by Lumpur Cha to, to take care of things, to, to lead the community after he passed away. And... Uh, so he was visiting a Bhayagiri monastery in California, and uh, somebody asked him the question, uh, Lumpur, you know, what's been the biggest obstacle, the biggest problem that you've faced in your monastic training, in your spiritual life? And uh, he started to respond by saying, oh, in, in the past there was a, a, a lot of fear, I experienced a great deal of, of fear. And then he, he paused in mid-sentence and said, but you know, to, to think in terms of, of a problem or an obstacle, you know, this is not really a, a helpful way to, to think. Um, you know, when we call something a problem or an obstacle, then there's a, a, um, a, an intrinsic negative attitude towards that. Like if it shouldn't be there or it doesn't belong, or it's something that's got a, a, a natural wrongness to it. And he said, uh, rather than thinking in terms of the problems or obstacles, it's much more helpful to think in terms of, of uh, interesting difficulties or, or useful challenges. And then he gave the example, as I recall, he said, you know, if, uh, if you're playing in a football team in your, uh, in your high school and you only ever play the other local teams in your, in your town or your area, then you don't have to put up a lot of effort because it's not a big challenge. If you're playing a game against the district champions, the champions of the whole region, then you have to raise your game. 
He said, so this is what uh, uh, is a much more skillful way to think rather than, than this is a problem or an obstacle. You know, this is a way that we can raise our game. If, you can under, uh, if you're familiar with that expression, you, you're uh, encouraged to draw upon more uh, significant, profound, helpful qualities than, um, than you normally would be. So I thought that was a uh, very helpful way to look at the idea of life's problems. Say, rather than life's problems, life's interesting challenges, or, or uh, say, useful, uh, useful difficulties, so that uh, by changing the, the attitude, the way we frame things in our minds, which is with an obstacle or a problem, think, oh, if only this wasn't here, everything would be all right. I'm not reading anybody's mind, but that's how we tend to think. If only it wasn't like this, then everything would be great. I would be happy. Um, and so it's changing the attitude is, uh, is primary or in terms of, of the Buddhist practice or using a Buddhist approach. Then um, looking at the word to solve, um, I'm a bit of a fan of, of etymologies and language. So I looked up the origins of the word uh, to solve, and it comes from the Latin uh, solvere, which means to loosen or to release, like to untie a knot or to, to something that's tight and tangled, you, you're untangling it, you're loosening it, you're, you're releasing it. So uh, I thought, well, that's a very interesting way to look about solving. <laughs> that. Uh, you're, uh, you're, you're loosening the situation, you're, you're releasing something that has been confined or, or kept, uh, kept trapped. So when we, we think about a, a solution, uh, it, I, again, we can think of, oh, this is a, this is a problem, this is, this is a difficulty. Once I've solved this, then everything will be all right, or this shouldn't be here, and once it's gone, then once I've got the answer to this puzzle, then everything will be good. But uh, to, to look at solving life's problems, or life's interesting difficulties, by, again, loosening the attitude, releasing them from our habit of grasping. Because <laughs> like, to, to release uh, something is in, a, uh, in contrast to holding on, to, to grasping, to clinging. So to release, <laughs> uh, to solve a problem, is to not be grasping a problem. And again, this is something that was very uh, uh, prominent in Lumpur Jha's teachings when he was explaining how to, uh, why we talk about letting go uh, so much. He said, yeah, the, the second, in the second noble truth, the Buddha explains how uh, it's uh, craving and clinging, tanha, uh, that is the, the cause of, of dissatisfaction, of that distress in the heart. And the way to work with that habit of, of craving, of self-centered clinging, craving, tanha, is to let go, pahata bhanti, is to, to release, to relinquish. So to solve is to, uh, to let go, to, uh, literally. And Ajahn Chah would say when we, we talk about letting go, it doesn't mean that the thing that we've been clinging on to, this possession, this, uh, our reputation, our, our role in life, uh, our family members, it doesn't mean we have to get rid of them or have to, to leave, you know, leave the monastery or sell the property or, or you know, destroy the, the things that we're attached to. He said, it doesn't mean you have to throw them away. So to, to let go 
Um, it's, when you, it's when you pick something up and you cling to it, then there's tension in the system. Uh, clinging brings stress and tension. To let go doesn't mean you have to throw it away, but you just, you just relax the grip. So he, uh, he would say, if you, uh, if you need to use something, like this, this bell striker, you, know, you, you pick it up, you want to ring the bell, you ring the bell, and then you, you, it's done its job, then you put it down again. So he said, this is uh, how to work with our, the aspects of our life. We hold and then we put down. Uh, we don't, to let go doesn't mean we have to destroy the things that we're clinging to or we have to wipe them out, but just to, to loosen the grip, to, to, um, uh, to soften and to, to say, change the, the way of holding. And so I feel that's also a good way of relating to uh, the, the different if, uh, difficulties and obstacles, the, the challenges that we meet in our lives. Then in terms of the Buddha's teachings, is the Buddha's teaching able to solve all life's pro all problem, uh, all problems in life? Um, well, the Buddha's teaching on its own is a collection of words. And so the, the words on their own can't do anything. Just like the, you know, this building, the temple here in Amravati, it's just a building. <laughs> the building can't liberate you. <laughs> it can be a, an environment uh, in which we can sit and we can have Dhamma teachings and we can uh, practice meditation, we can uh, chant together, sit together, we can reflect on the teachings together. Uh, but the building itself is just a structure, it's just a, 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 a physical form. So the Buddha's teachings, similarly, uh, are just a, a collection of words. And I think the, the first of the Sunday talks this, this year was about breathing spirit into form. And so that that, uh, I feel, is also helpful to consider that the teachings on their own can't liberate. Uh, they're just a collection of words and ideas. And so, to again, looking at the wording, you know, is, uh, is the Buddha's teaching able to solve uh, all uh, problems in life? Like, well, <laughs> the words on their own can't do that. But if those, if those words, if those teachings are listened to, if they're taken to heart, if they're understood, if they're, they're uh, practiced, uh, if they're acted upon, and if then um, in that acting upon those teachings that, that brings about a quality of realization, a transformation of the heart, then yes, <laughs> there is solution. There is that quality uh, of release and liberation. There is that quality of, of fulfillment. So uh, I would say that it's the teachings on their own. Are, are, are like uh, you can have a a beautiful uh, cabinet in your in your home or tipitika. You can have a lovely shrine with a, an antique tipitika cabinet and these beautifully printed books, and uh, they can sit there, and they'll just be an object in your living room. <laughs> they'll be part of your shrine, but the uh, the teachings on their own they uh, are. Are, un, are unable to, to liberate. So that uh, aspect of picking things up, uh, uh, investigating, uh, applying those teachings, taking them to heart, and then using them to change the way that, that we see, we think, we act, that's, that's the crucial piece. So then putting that all together, so, it, so it, is, the, is the Buddha's teaching 
able to solve all life's problems. Um, I think another aspect of this is that um, the, uh, the the Buddha was known as the doctor of the world in the Northern Buddhist tradition. They say the Besa Joguru, the uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 healing teacher. And so that uh, any of you who are, who are doctors or uh, any of us who thought about the medical world realize that no matter how good a doctor is, there is no doctor in the world that can cure every illness. Unless someone would disagree. <laughs> no doctor. You can, have, you, you can have extraordinary skill and uh, incredi- you know, incredible uh, competence and knowledge, but no doctor anywhere is capable of curing all illnesses. And, uh, and as, uh, again, as Ajahn Chah would often say, you know, even, even doctors get sick and they die. <laughs> you know, all the doctors die one day. So even the best doctors in the world, they, uh, there isn't a single doctor who can ultimately cure death, uh, you know, death of the physical body. And so that, uh, that uh, in terms of solving all life's problems, like a, a doctor cannot cure all diseases. Um, and so if we think of life's you know, problems or interesting challenges as kind of making difficult things go away uh, or finding a way that we never get illness of any kind, everybody approves of us all the time, all our traffic lights turn green, there's always a parking space for us. It's, you know, I, don't even, I don't need to carry on, I don't even need to really finish the sentence because we all know well, that just doesn't happen. Life is not that way. But... Um, there, there's, uh, there's always limitations, there's always difficulties. Um, one particularly significant uh, teaching in this area uh, that uh, I've, uh, it's a very short sutta, and that I, but I feel is, is a very, very helpful for us to, to be familiar with, is called the Arrow, the Sala Sutta. It's in the Connected Discourses, um, Sutta number six in the connected discourses about the senses, the six senses, the Salayatana, um, uh, salayatana Vaga. So, um, and the, the arrow, it comes from the, the imagery of a soldier on a battlefield. And the, the Buddha, people often uh, forget or don't realize that the Buddha was a soldier before he was a monk. So there was a, a lot of military imagery in the Buddha's teaching. And so this is one of those instances where he talks about um, a, a soldier on a battlefield. And uh, he gives the image of being shot by an arrow. He said that, that uh, if you think of a soldier on a, on a battlefield, uh, the, arrow, the soldier is hit by the first arrow. And that first arrow is physical pain. He said there's nobody that can avoid being hit by that first arrow. If you're a living being, there will be physical pain. If you have a body, you have a mind, pain is completely unavoidable. And even, even he, as a, as a fully enlightened Buddha, he had illnesses, he had physical pain. He, um, uh, uh, when he was, uh, when he was uh, uh, elderly, uh, he had chronic back pain. Uh, those of you who are familiar, again, with the suttas know at the beginning of the, the discourse about the Buddha's last days, the, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, he, he starts off uh, uh, early on in the Sutta with him saying, um, my body is like an old cart held together with straps and, and strings, and uh, the, the only way I can experience physical comfort is to completely absorb the mind into emptiness. That, uh, and if he was meaning that if he was in ordinary waking consciousness, he was in pain. 
he had uh, he had uh, chronic back pain. There's numerous places where uh, he's giving a dhamma talk like 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 this, and he says he'll turn to his uh, one of his um, senior monks, like uh, Venerable Ananda or Venerable uh, Sariputta Moggallana, Mahakasapa, Mahakachana, and say uh, he'll say, uh, Ajahn Kongrit, my back is paining me. <laughs> the assembly is still awake. I'm going to go and lie down and stretch my back. Uh, you can carry on giving a teaching to the to the assembly. He didn't say congruent, but <laughs> just to use a current day example. So, um, if I if I may, we will take that liberty. So, it, the, not only did was the Buddha fully enlightened and incapable of, of dukkha, but he was he also experienced pain and was ready to take action to relieve the physical pain and didn't mind people knowing about that. That wasn't seen as a weakness or something out of order. Literally, there's, there's not just one place. It's like six or seven, maybe seven or eight times in the suttas you get that kind of exchange where he says, um, my back is paining me, the, uh, the assembly is wide awake, I'm going to go and lie down and stretch my back. Please carry on giving a teaching to, to the, the community. So it happened a few times. <laughs> So I feel that's a, that's a very significant teaching in that you can have so much pain that you need to take action to do something about it, but still not be suffering on account of that. So pain is one thing, suffering is another. So that's where the second arrow comes in. So the second arrow is the suffering, the agitation, the resentment, the negativity around that pain. Wanting it to be over, feeling it's unfair that you're feeling it, um, resenting the, the the source of it, negotiating, trying to get away with uh, from it, uh, worrying about it, all of that is the, the second arrow. He said the second arrow is completely avoidable. That is that's something that that we can uh, we can evade. We don't have to be hit by that second arrow. So this is a short teaching that uh, Sutta number six in uh, Salayatana Vaga. Um, but it's uh, extremely significant, <laughs> uh, I feel, because it's saying that, you know, really making it clear that pain is one thing, suffering is another. So we can experience physical pain and it, for it to be absolutely not a problem. Uh, last weekend I was uh, away in different places and uh, this, uh, I was talking about this theme. Uh, it came up in a teaching day, a meditation day in London. And uh, somebody asked the question, well, wasn't there an occasion when the, the Buddha was giving a talk and he said, um, since Sariputra and Moggallana had passed away, that it seemed like the assembly was empty? And I said, yeah, exactly right. Because <laughs> uh, in the, the sutta on the arrow, he only refers directly to physical pain. In uh, this other sutta, which is, was given at a place called Ukachela, uh, he's giving a, a, a Dhamma teaching and he makes the comment to the, the assembled community. He says, uh, now that Sariputra and Moggallana have passed away, it's as if the assembly is empty. So he was uh, acknowledging that feeling of, of, of loss or the, the sense of, oh, it's like it's, uh, it, this, this is a, a change, that there's something missing in the, in the field of perception. So again, he wasn't creating suffering in himself about that, but he's acknowledging that feeling of, of something missing, something gone, something empty, something lost. Uh, and so uh, again, when we talk about the Lord Buddha, often 
that we would say, oh, the heat would never have any kind of um, painful feeling or, or that the heat would never have any kind of uh, negative emotion or uncomfortable emotional state. But right there, in the, in the suttas themselves, there's this, in that particular place, I think it's very clearly spelled out. And I feel it's a great strength of the tradition that not only did that happen, that it was recorded <laughs> and that it's passed on all these ages later, that... It's not considered a, a weakness or something wrong or something that the Buddha would be embarrassed about. That uh, he's, miss, quote unquote, uh, missing his friends or conscious of the absence of these uh, long standing Dhamma companions and people who are so close to him, so important, so, uh, so near to him in the, in the whole development of the teaching and the community. But he's quite happy to say, oh, look, this is, it's, uh, there's hundreds of people here, but it feels as though the place is empty because Sariputta and Moggallana have passed on. And uh, so, again, I feel that's representing the, the psychological pain or the, the um, dolmanasa side. The, there's the, the dukkha vedana, painful feeling on the physical side, and, and dolmanasa is the word for mental painful feeling, painful, uh, painful mental feeling. Um, and so uh, uh, in terms of li uh, solving life's problems, then I think it's helpful to understand that we can have both physical pain and, and uh, emotional pain and for it not to be a problem. <laughs> we can have intense feelings of grief or sadness or regret and they can be very strong, they can be very, um, very powerful, but still the mind can be completely at, at peace with those. And I've had that experience myself, again, of having a conversation about this a few days ago, where you're feeling a, a very strong feeling of regret, of having, you know, having things having really gone, gone in, a, in a very bad and difficult, painful way, and literally tears running down my face, but yet being completely at peace at the same time. And then, because I've got a a brain that likes to figure things out and explain things. Like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm feeling really sad, so sad that, that uh, there's tears running down my face, but yet, um, uh, yet it's really peaceful. And as my mind went into an explanation or a commentary about it, the tears stopped. <laughs> the thinking was kind of obstructing the, the emotion. And when I stopped thinking, then the tears started flowing again. And it was more peaceful to be not thinking, <laughs> if you can follow that. So and be a subject for discussion. I thought, that's really interesting. If I don't try and explain it or think about it, then the feeling, the emotion is stronger, but it's more completely peaceful at the same time. Very interesting. <laughs> There's also another um, a dialogue, another helpful dialogue, again, um, from the suttas, where this very elderly disciple of the Buddha called Nakula Pitta came to, to visit him and this elderly couple, um, Nakula Pitta and Nakula Mata, according to the stories, they had been the Buddha's parents in, in yeah, more than 500 lifetimes. So they were very, emotionally very, very close to the Buddha. And they, they lived in a place called Sumsumaragira, the, the crocodile haunt. Uh, and uh, so when the Buddha was in that area, they would come to see him. And one day Nakula Pitta came along and said, you know, Venerable Sir, I am very old. I'm 100 years old. My body is decrepit. I have lots and lots of aches and pains and, and ailments, you know, as you would expect from being 100 years old. 
And so have you got advice for someone like me who's, <laughs> who's experiencing old age and, and all this, uh, the, this decrepitude, these, these obstacles, these difficulties that come from, from old age? And then the Buddha responds to Nikulapita by saying, it's better to be afflicted in body and not afflicted in the mind than it is to be afflicted in the mind and not afflicted in the body. So essentially saying, the fact that you're, you're 100 years old and you've got lots of aches and pains and uh, such like, you know, that, that doesn't matter so much as if, uh, if your mind is free of, of uh, greed, hatred and delusion, if your mind is free of, of ignorance. And then he went on to spell it out by reciting the, the whole of the, the teaching on not-self, the Anatalakana Sutta. So once again, I feel that's... Uh, he, uh, he, um, he didn't say to Nakulapita, well, you know, if you play your cards right, you can, you can get born again and have a nice, have a nice young pain-free body. <laughs> he, uh, so instead, he said, it's, it's all to do with attitude. Everything hinges around attitude. And that if there's a skillful attitude, even if the body is very, very aged, very ill, has lots of aches and pains and, and uh, ailments, that, that doesn't have to be a problem. It's the, the attitude towards it that's the, the thing that, that matters. And then in that instance, he gave a, this extensive teaching about, about not-self. So I feel this is, this is really the, the key in terms of, kind of quote-unquote, uh, solving, solving life's problems. And if the Buddha's teaching can, can do that, it can, uh, if, the, if we use the teachings to change the attitude towards our, our physical being, our health, our, our conflicts in the family, uh, in the workplace and in the, uh, in the planet, then if we change the attitude, then there can be a resolution. There, there can be a quality of... Of, of peace and, and ease, but there's never going to be a, a situation where like, all the diseases vanish, or all our traffic lights turn green, or there's always a parking space for us, or uh, where they close the hospitals because no one gets ill anymore. Will that, will that ever happen? <laughs> but, uh, no one needs to train as a doctor because no one's getting ill anymore. Uh, I don't think that's ever going to happen. So there's a, another, say, very significant teaching in this area, is where the, the Buddha was asked a question. Um, by uh, this was a dialogue uh, again that uh, I, I like to refer to a lot between him and a, a devata called Rohitasa, and so Rohitasa came to the Buddha one night and said, "Yeah, before this lifetime as a deva, I was a, a yogi, I was a, a meditator, and I had made this resolution." that I was going to, to travel the world until I came uh, to, to the place where the world ends. And he said, and I, I made this vow, I'll keep walking until I come to the end of the world. And he said, uh, even though I had great, uh, uh, great determination and great psychic abilities, I could walk through the air, as well as uh, across land and water, uh, still I walked and I walked and I walked and I didn't pause uh, and, and I couldn't get to the end of the world. And, and I passed away on the journey and now I've been reborn as a devata. So can I ask you, is it possible to, uh, to walk to, the, uh, to, to reach the end of the world? And the Buddha responds with this famous statement where he said, uh, I tell you, you cannot reach the end of the world by walking, but unless you reach the end of the world, you won't reach the end of dukkha, you won't reach the end of suffering. And so then, 
that's a, a bit of a, a puzzle right there. And then he went on, went on to say uh, 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 the, the solution, <laughs> the way he solved that puzzle was uh, the, uh, it is uh, in this very body, this, uh, f this uh, fathom-long body, with its thoughts and its perceptions, there is the, the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So in that formulation, he's equating the world with dukkha, with dissatisfaction, which some people might find a bit strange. But what he's saying is, when we look upon the world, the loka, as solid, as real, as, as permanent, if we invest the world with substantiality, then it's, it is equivalent to dukkha. That if we say, you know, the, the, the world is out there, the world is... Uh, that permanent real quality uh, of this physical um, the structures and existence around us, that, then that uh, the, the degree to which the mind invests the world with solidity and doesn't see it as empty is the degree to which the mind creates dukkha. If the world is seen as empty, as sunya, then then uh, there is, uh, in that, then the heart is freed from its limitations. We've reached the, quote-unquote, the, the end of the world. And uh, so essentially, when, you th when we reflect upon that, and it's, uh, this is one of those teachings that's very good to take into the meditation hall or, or into the, onto the, the cushion with you and say, well, how does that work? How can it be that within this life, within this body, this mind, there is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, the way leading to the cessation of the world. And why, why should the cessation of the world be attractive? <laughs> and uh, so if we see uh, that, uh, or reflect in this way, that what we mean by the end of the world is seeing the, the end of the substantiality of the world, seeing that the world is uh, this uh, collection of perceptions of the world, uh, and seeing those as empty of intrinsic substance, then there's a, a freeing of the heart. So in a parallel teaching, one that's closely related to that, the Buddha defines what he means by the world. And he said, uh, when someone asks him, what is, what is the world? Uh, he says, that whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world, that is what we call the world in this Dhamma and discipline. And what is it whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world? The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. So we might say, here we are, we're in the temple at Amravati, it's Sunday afternoon, uh, August the 27th. I am, at, uh, I am in the temple at Amravati, this is Hertfordshire. But I would also suggest right now for each one of us, Hertfordshire, Amravati Temple, Sunday afternoon of August the 27th, this is happening and this is known through the agency of our minds. Right? You close my eyes, you all vanish. Open my eyes, everyone's here. And it's not like you evaporated, but without the, the sense of vision, I don't know if there's anyone here. Open my eyes, I can see people. So in, in this moment, uh, the mind of each one of us pieces together its best guess of what is happening. Through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, memory, imagination, we put together, we assemble a, 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 a guess, an estimate of what's going on. That's what the senses do. And in this, this teaching of the Buddha, he's saying that this is the world we experience. We might say the world is out there, uh, 
in terms of the, the land and the trees and the sky and the birds and the clouds and the sun and the moon. But what we know of the birds and the trees and the sky and the sun and the moon is known through our, our seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Every single moment of our entire life, even before we were born, was known through the agency of this mind. In your mother's womb, hearing her heartbeat, it was known through that, the mind, of that, of that uh, small entity, a small being, you know, not yet born. All through our, our infancy, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, all the way along, everything we've ever experienced has been known through the agency, through the medium of our own minds, right? It's not, that's not news, that's not magic, that's just, yeah, that's physically how, how it works. So none of us actually experience the world. We all experience our own mind's version of the world. And so where the world ends or the ending of the world is in a sense uh, recognizing exactly that. This is a, a, uh, an event known in the awareness of the mind and, it's, uh, and I call it the world, I call it Amravati, I call this Hertfordshire, I call this Sunday afternoon. Um, that's a, a, con a convenient way of speaking, it's not an absolute truth. As I like to say, before the 1970s, this was Bedfordshire. Then they changed the county boundaries and it became Hertfordshire. <laughs> Just the name changed, you know. I've got a lot of different names, you know, that uh, I wasn't born uh, Ajahn Amaro. <laughs> That, uh, that was, the name was given. Actually, before I was born, my mother was going to call me Lucy. <laughs> and both my sisters were going to be called David. And she, she realized she had very weak intuition when uh, the first two were girls and David wasn't going to be a good name for either of them. And then she thought, okay, this one's definitely a girl as well. And then I appeared, so Lucy wasn't going to work for me either. So, true story. <laughs> so, uh, the... Um, uh, the, the ending of the world is uh, ending of that conceit that the world uh, is what I experience every moment. The world as I see it, I call this beautiful, I call that, I call that ugly, I call that right, I call that wrong. I call this opinion true uh, and my knowledge is, is certain. My understanding is correct. So to see the, the emptiness of the world or to, to, to uh, experience or to know the the ending of the world is ending of that false solidity of, uh, uh, but rather to recognize that this is a, these are a, a flow of perceptions that come together and take form and it's the mind creating a best guess about the nature of reality, uh, good enough to, to get by, uh, good enough to be able to function in the physical world and, and to to work together with, with other people. When we have mental illnesses, or we're an infant, or when uh, we have um, you know, diseases and such like, uh, uh, of uh, various kinds where the perceptions are distorted, where we suddenly we can't see, or our, we, our, our thoughts are scrambled, or we, uh, or we haven't got language developed yet, then it's not so easy to function harmoniously with the rest of the group. For like a little baby, they haven't got language developed, so they, when they're uncomfortable, they've only got one thing to do. <laughs> but to let people know, hey, hungry, <laughs> or, or like, oh, uncomfortable, because they haven't got the words to spell it out. Uh, so that um, recognition that the ending of the world, or where the world ends, it's not something bad or terrible, but it, in, the, in the Buddha's teaching, it's something that is, 
is profoundly liberating to see that uh, oh, this is a set of, uh, of, of uh, limited and subjective perceptions and we put them together. So it's just my mind's version of the world. So it's, uh, it's liberating because it also helps us to harmonize with each other more completely because rather than assuming if someone thinks differently from the way that we do that they're wrong or they're foolish, we recognize, well, this is my version of the world. How could it be exactly the same as everybody else's version of the world? So we find a, a greater quality of respect and humility, humility in relationship to other people. Uh, a teaching that Lumpur Sumato is very fond of quoting is also very relevant here, and it's so. What it's uh, what he likes to to quote is it's a passage that you find in two different places in the in the Pali Canon, and it's both when the uh, occur when the when it's a story involving a, a Brahma god, and uh, it's kind of related to the question that Rohitasa the the Deva had about. Can you can you get to the end of the world by walking? And the Buddha says, No, you can't. You can't get to the end of the world by walking. But unless you get to the end of the world, you won't get to the end of suffering. And in this other this other teaching called the Kevada Sutta, this monk has been meditating, and this question arises in his mind: uh, Where is it that the four great elements—earth, water, fire, and, and wind—where is it that the four elements fade out and cease without remainder? Where is it? The, 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 is there a place or is there a, a, a state of being where the, the four elements come to an end? And this question rises in his mind and then because he had some psychic power, then he goes up to visit the, the devas of the, the, the four, the, the four uh, 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 guardian deities, the four Chatu Maharajikas, and then the Tavatings of heaven, the heaven of the 33 gods, the Yama devas, the Tusita devas, the devas who delight in creating, the devas who delight in the creations of others, then all the way up to the Brahma world. And each one of those heavens, they say, oh, this is, this is profound philosophy. We don't know. We kind of ask upstairs, you know, <laughs> go, go, and, go and talk to the, the two-seater devas. Oh, we don't know. Go and ask the, the um, Paranimadavasavati devas. And they say, oh, we don't know. Go and ask the Brahmas. Yeah. They're, they're profound, they're wise, they're great beings, they will understand. And he gets to the, the heaven of uh, Mahabrahma, and he arrives there in the, uh, and talks to some of the Brahma deities there. And they say, oh, well, we're, we're members of the, of the court of, of great Brahma, but, you know, this is profound philosophy. We, uh, we can't possibly answer this. You'll have to wait for the great Brahma himself to, to come along and, and answer this question. And say, if we're lucky, then the, the Brahma will appear. Maybe he, uh, Brahma will be able to answer your question. And so then uh, eventually a light appears and Brahma, this Brahma, Mahabrahma manifests. And then the, the monk asks Mahabrahma, can you tell me where is it that, uh, uh, that earth, water, fire and wind cease without remainder, where they, they come to an end? And then Mahabrahma responds, I am Brahma, the great Brahma, the almighty, the creator and ordainer of, uh, of, uh, of all things that are and are to be. Um, and then the monk says, Actually, I didn't ask you that. I asked you, where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind cease without remainder? I am Brahma, the great Brahma, uh, the almighty, the, the uh, master and ordainer of all things that, are, that have been and are to be, uh, with this you know, great Brahma voice. And then 
I, this happens three times over, as is always the case in Buddhist stories. We always do things three times over. After the third time, like, um, I am Brahma, the great Brahma. And then the monk says, no, I didn't ask you that. Then Brahma it says, takes him by the elbow and leads him to a side and says, you're embarrassing me in front of my retinue. Look, I don't know the answer to this question. So you're, you're making me look bad. You know, by the way, and you're, you're a disciple of the Buddha. What are you doing up here asking me? You should go and ask the master. Um, you know, you live with him. He's in, the Buddha's in your monastery. You, know, you should go and ask him. Don't ask, don't ask me. So he goes, and goes back uh, down through the, the realms and appears back in his kuti and then goes to, to ask the Buddha. And the Buddha said, uh, just like a, a land-seeking bird that's set off from a ship to, uh, to, to, that goes off, flies away from the ship to, to, to seek land and then uh, will come back to the ship and, until it finds land. Like a land-seeking bird, you've gone to this place and that place and this place and that place, seeking your answer, but now you've come back to the ship, come back to, to me because uh, you haven't been able to find a, a solution elsewhere. And he said, uh, you've been asking the question in the wrong way. Rather than asking the question, you know, and again, like reframing the issue as he did with Rohitasa, the Buddha said, you're asking the question in the wrong way. Rather than where is it that earth, water, fire and wind fade out and cease without remainder, uh, instead, you should have said, where is it that uh, earth, water, fire and wind and long and short and coarse and fine and pure and impure can find no footing, can find no landing place? And then... uh, then he answers his own question. He says, it is, uh, in the Pali, is vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabato pabang. Again, this is, those of you who've listened to Lumpo Sumato's Dhamma talks will know, that sounds familiar. <laughs> it appears in many, many of his teachings he refers to this. So what it means is vinyanang, the consciousness or the awareness, anidasanang, uh, anidasana means non-manifest, without a form, uh, uh, the invisible or uh, the um, the great uh, Buddhist scholar and meditator, uh, Venerable um, uh, um, uh, I forgot his name now, <laughs> the um, Jnanananda, <laughs> yeah, Venerable Jnanananda uh, in Sri Lanka uh, uses the word non-manifestative. Not, uh, it's non-manifestative, it, uh, uh, so this this kind of awareness has no physical form. It uh, is invisible. So uh, it's a kind of awareness. It has no form, no shape. Uh, anantang means limitless, infinite, boundless. Sabato pabang uh, li- uh, can, uh, can mean a variety of things, but it's, uh, the main meaning is uh, radiant in all directions. Sabato sabba means means all. Uh, pabang so radiant in all directions. So, so um, uh, that which is bright uh, in, in all dimensions. Vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabato pabang. So the the consciousness or the awareness which is formless, limitless, and radiant in, in all dimensions. There it is, long and short and coarse and fine, earth, water, fire and wind can find no footing. Uh, This is where they all come to an an end. They are all held in check therein, nirujati. They are are checked. They they, they stop right there. They they have no landing place. They have no traction. 
So in terms of solving life's problems, quote-unquote, going back to our theme, <laughs> that not giving life's so-called problems a landing place, not creating problematicness, it's not a very long word, <laughs> out of having illnesses, having uh, arguments in the family, uh, having political uh, leaders who are less than inspiring, uh, having you know, social problems uh, in our own lives and the lives of people around us, the issues of climate change and uh, degradation of the environment and so on, all these very significant and important issues that uh, are aspects of our, our living world, the, uh, not giving them a place to land doesn't mean switching off and spacing out and saying, there's no landing place, you know, <laughs> the world is empty, uh, you know, it's not me, not mine. It's not a kind of uh, rejection or a, um, a kind of a, a subtle aversion or, or, or a dismissal of the, the, the challenges that we meet or the aspects of life around us, but rather it's, it's loosening the grip, not clinging, not grasping, not giving them a place to land. They're still there, but they're not given a place to land, which means that they're not grasped at or identified with like the, the Buddha said to Nakulapita, explaining the, that um, the, uh, uh, being unafflicted in mind is, uh, is the same thing as not taking the aches and pains of the body and illnesses and limitations of old age as who and what we are. This, to, to see the body as this is, not, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am, this is not myself. So that uh, this... Uh, and why that, that sentence appears so often in Lumpur Sumedho's teachings, it's really the, uh, spelling out the core principle of awareness, awakened awareness that he, he uh, talks about and explains and uh, uh, illuminates uh, so regularly. Because the more that the heart can, uh, can embody that awakened awareness, that vinyanang anidasanang, uh, then the more that... Uh, all of the uh, the uh, the aspects of life that we experience, the responsibilities, the challenges, and the the the, uh, the qualities of life itself—they're present, but they're not given a landing place. They're not grasped at or identified with. So we can live in a way that's much more uh, much more free, much more spacious, uh, and uh, uh, in a much more uh, unlimited way. The um, one of the other things about uh, in considering this this issue that uh, I feel it's important to to consider is again if we look at the life of the Buddha when he was confronted with difficulties uh, or there were there were kind of quote unquote problems in, in his world that uh, it's it's very uh, uh, say instructive to see how he handled difficulties like uh, his cousin, Devadatta, who was a, a senior monk in the community, one of the Sakyan princes. He was the Buddha's cousin. He was the Buddha's brother-in-law. He was the uncle of the Buddha's own son, Rahula. He was the brother of, of Yashodara, who was the Buddha's former wife. And so Devadatta, a close family member, but now wanting to, you know, to cause all kinds of difficulty, deliberately trying to cause a division in the Sangha, deliberately trying to take the Buddha's life. So the way he handled Devadatta and his, his attempts at murder <laughs> and attempts at causing division in, in the Sangha is, is very, very significant. That, uh, he doesn't just use his psychic power to um, 
to to stop Devadatta from doing anything. He doesn't. Uh, even when Devadatta is try, deliberately trying to cause a schism, a, a division in the community, uh, uh, he doesn't immediately try to stop Devadatta from doing that. You know, he, if he, he could almost certainly read his mind and see what Devadatta was up to. He didn't come down in a, in a heavy way or try to intervene. He let Devadatta make his own mistakes. When Devadatta was rolling a rock down the mountain to... to, to, to um, to try and kill the Buddha with a with a rock, the Buddha didn't use his psychic power to kind of to to whisk the the rock away. The rock broke apart on the on the on the side of the mountain, and a, a shard of stone cut the Buddha's foot and it injured him quite badly, seemingly. But uh, so he let Devadatta make his own stupid mistakes, and uh, repeatedly in, in many different instances. Um, and so there's there's quite a number of situations like that. One of the uh, another well-known story is when he was walking through the countryside with his attendant uh, bhikkhu called Nagasamala, his upatak, his attendant. And this is just the two of them walking through the countryside together, and they're on their way to Rajagaha, Rajgir. And they come to a fork in the road, and uh, the Buddha takes the you know the say the right-hand fork, and Nagasamala, his attendant, says, "Venerable sir, um, excuse me, but." This is the road to Rajagaha. And the Buddha says, No, Nagasamala, this is the way we should go. And again, this is, happens three times over. I said, Venerable Sir, <clears throat> yeah, I know this road well. This is the road to Rajagaha. The Buddha said, This is the way we should go. And then again, this is three times over. And then Nagasamala says, Well, Venerable Sir, you, know, you go your way, I'll go mine. Here's your bowl and your robe. And li- he literally gives the Buddha his own bowl and his own robe to carry and goes off down what he thinks is the, the, the right road. He goes down that road and gets attacked by a bunch of dacoits, gets beaten up, and, uh, and then and, uh, his, his robe's torn, his head, uh, his bowl broken, and so on. So then he drags himself back through the countryside and <laughs> rejoins the Buddha, said, Venerable Sir, terribly sorry, Venerable Sir. <laughs> and that, uh, and the, the Buddha said, you know, uh, I told you, <laughs> this is the way we should go, and, uh, and that. Uh, so even though he knew that's not that might be the usual road to to Rajagaha, this is the best way to go because there's bandits down that road, and if we go that way, there'll be trouble. And so uh, he let Nagasamala make the mistake, asking him three times. The Buddha didn't say. I'm saying this is the correct road to go because there are bandits down that road. And he, he let Nagasamala kind of make his own choices. And uh, if he was wise, he would have said, now, I'm traveling together with a fully enlightened Buddha who is extraordinarily wise, has all kinds of psychic power, so he must know that this is the, the, the most direct route to Rajagaha. Now, why is the master saying, let's go by that route? It can't be the case that I know the road better than he does. So why is he saying, let's go by that road? He didn't think that. <laughs> so, so the Buddha, and sometimes people find it difficult to, to, to deal with stories like this, like, that was the, the Buddha was really unkind. He let his own disciple get beaten up. It's like, well, sometimes the disciples are so thick-headed that uh, <laughs> a, uh, uh, the, the message doesn't get through until that kind of blunt uh, instruction is given. Um, and that, uh, so uh, I feel that in terms of dealing with 
with life's difficulties and challenges, particularly with um, with other people. <laughs> it can be also our, our own mind states, but generally this is to do with, with working with other people, that rather than trying to force others to fit our expectations or force particular behaviors, like make you, you know, to order and command, like, you know, you shouldn't do this and I'm going to stop you doing that. Act, uh, it's, I feel it's very help, very instructive, very... Uh, worthy of consideration. Well, why didn't the Buddha do that? He had extraordinary power to read people's minds, to control situations. But over and over and over, he let people make their own mistakes. Usually, they, he would suggest three times over, that's not a good idea, don't do that. Also with, with Megia, when uh, Megia, again, was a attendant of the Buddha, and said, I want to go off and practice by myself. I'm determined to reach enlightenment. The Buddha said, it's not a good idea, Megia. Yeah, better you stay with me and we'll, we'll go meditate together and uh, no no I'm going to do it. I'm going to go by myself I'm going to I'm going to really crack the nut and and realize enlightenment and then Megia goes off after three three recommendations from the Buddha Megia goes off by himself and as it says his mind was beset with all kinds of uh, unwholesome and unskillful thoughts for the whole day then he can, again drags himself back to the Buddha at the end of the day oh that was really awful <laughs> and uh, but the Buddha let him go. He didn't say, you know, I command you to stay, or like, no, I forbid that. He said, okay, three times, I've given you advice three times over. Okay, you're on your own, off you go. Do your thing. And uh, so I do feel that in terms of working with life's problems, quote-unquote, that is a very helpful example. The Buddha let people make their own mis mistakes, and hopefully they would learn from them. Um, and it, like uh, the... Uh, sometimes the feedback that the Buddha was giving was, or allowing to happen was, was pretty blunt, like uh, not stopping Devad Devadatta from creating that you know, incredibly bad karma. It's like, well, you know, you've attempted to kill, the, to, to kill a Buddha, you've shed the Buddha's blood, you've, you've deliberately tried to cause a schism in the community, like this is really bad karma. But the Buddha said, okay, well, he's, uh, uh, he's determined to go his own way. And uh, in, this, in that lifetime, Devadatta didn't get the point. That he, he never, he never uh, sort of came around. But according to the Buddhist mythology, um, that I think it was uh, uh, finally um, the the ground opened up and just swallowed <laughs> Devadatta down into the lower realms. It's, he created so much bad karma that the earth couldn't support him anymore, and it's opened up and swallowed him down into the hell realms. But they say, according to Buddhist cosmology mythology that after Devadatta's stint in the hell realms, that in his next life he'll be a Pacheka Buddha. He'll be like a fully enlightened Buddha, who, who, one who doesn't establish a, a Sangha. But in his next lifetime in the human world, he will reach full and complete enlightenment. So he didn't get it in this lifetime, but <laughs> the, uh, receiving the results of, uh, of unskillful action, eventually you know, it can have a good result. Another example of that is... Um, the Buddha's charioteer, Channa, who became a bhikkhu. And uh, even though he was the Buddha's charioteer when he was a prince, uh, and Channa had gone forth as a monk, so 45 years uh, of monastic life, Channa was like, I was the Buddha's driver. You know, he's, I'm special to him. You know, I'm, I'm someone significant. And uh, he couldn't let go of the fact that he was this kind of a special uh, special character in the, in, the, in the Buddha's world. And so... Uh, as the Buddha was uh, uh, on um, 
in the last days of his life, literally just hours before he, he finally passed away and realized the Parinibbana, uh, he, he said, lying down under the sala trees in Kusinara, and uh, Chana is to be, um, uh, to be given the Brahma Danda, like the, the supreme punishment. So no one is to talk to him. He's to be completely ostracized and that... Uh, and make sure you pass this message to to, to Venerable Channa. He is he's receiving the Brahma Danda, the the the, the, the supreme punishment from me, <laughs> and that, and so that uh, the the one way of getting through to Channa. He was so thick skinned, so kind of bull headed that okay, the master is breathing his last breath, and with his last breath, he's saying, Channa, you're really out of order. <laughs> So that finally that got through, and Chana said, oh, I've been really conceited, really inflated. I, I really have got lost. You know, the master's at the end of his, of his life, and he chooses to, to uh, out of compassion, point out that I'm an idiot. Okay, right. That, that, if that's one of the last things he does, has to deliver to the world, okay, I really, I really have lost it here. And finally the message got through, so Chana was able to, to receive that, that feedback. So, but for all those years, the Buddha was not, uh, 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 he couldn't sort of take Chana's conceit and, and uh, inflatedness away from him. So I do feel that that's a significant aspect of, uh, uh, of the teaching that, uh, and I could give many, many examples, but where the, the Buddha allows people to misunderstand him, he allows people to make mistakes, he doesn't just use his authority, his ability to control or command, so in our families, in the workplace, in the monastery, <laughs> I feel it's a very good way to operate. Very, very important for us to not just force or control or to, to command or demand uh, our children or our co-workers or our family members or our fellow monastics or uh, friends, uh, but rather to make our input in a skillful way, to express ourselves as clearly as we can, and then it's up to people to make their own choices. And if they make really stupid choices, okay, well, that was, that's going to be painful. Like, oh, I don't want to look. <laughs> okay? That, uh, then that's, that's up to them. You know that you care. You're, you're confident that you care. But it's up to them. Uh, may, people make their own choices, and hopefully they learn from the results. Sometimes, like China, it takes 45 years. Or like Devadatta, it's going to take a long stint down in the the lower realms, but uh, uh, sometimes letting people make their own mistakes and uh, receiving the, the painful results, that's the most compassionate uh, thing that we can do to work with life's difficulties. So in response to that uh, question of uh, is the Buddha's teaching able to solve all life's problems, I would say if the Buddha's teaching is practiced and uh, it's the, tr uh, it's tr the truth of it is realized directly and embodied in our lives, then the problematic nature of life can end completely. doesn't mean you'll win the lottery or all your traffic lights will be green, that you'll always have a parking space and everyone will like you and approve of you all the time, but uh, it will not be problematic anymore. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this afternoon. So now it's time for some refreshment. Please, uh, uh, should have magically appeared out in the cloister, I think. That's what was happening last time. So, uh, and then we'll gather back together at 20 past. We'll ring a bell and gather back at uh, 3.20.
And if you have questions, save them for the question period. Don't come up now and say, Ajahn, can I ask you a question? Save it for when everyone's together. So when um, people ask a question, if uh, everyone can use a microphone, so then uh, everyone can hear the, the question being asked, and also and then that uh, is uh, part of uh, what's being recorded, be helpful. So let's uh, see if there are any questions in the room, anything particularly relating to what I've said this afternoon. Sometimes people take the opportunity to ask a question about something tangential to the day's theme. <laughs> so I try to stick with the, the theme for the day, if you possibly can. But please do uh, ask away anything that would be useful to, to clarify and talk about. Everyone is free of doubts? No, okay, go ahead, go grab the microphone. There's a, uh, should be a switch on the side there. That's it. If you slide it upwards. Thank you for the talk. Yeah. Yes, very good. Um, it is slightly tangential. So, but, um, I was just wondering how the suttas were kind of put together. Um, were they directed by the Buddha? Would the Buddha be saying to Ananda, you know, write this down, write this down? <laughs> and then how... Then they were disseminated after that. If, you know, obviously it wouldn't have been printed, or maybe people wouldn't um, have, you know, read. Um, the literacy rates would have been quite low in those days. So it's slightly tangential, but I was just wondering, you know, all the lessons that were learned, how that, how that came into sort of a, a wider view. The. Um the story goes that uh, in the Buddha's time, reading and writing was uh, uh, was quite rare. There, there was there was reading and writing in the Buddha's time, but it was a very limited number of people who had those abilities, and um, so that uh, uh, there was uh, the uh, also because the the people who could read and write would either be uh, in the business world or in the um, so religious professionals like Brahmin scholars and such like. Um, and so in order for the teaching to be accessible to everybody, anybody and everybody, then not only did the Buddha use the local language, Pali, common, common speech, rather than Sanskrit, kind of, or the sort of uh, more uh, legal language, if you like, or philosophical language. So he used the kind of everyday speech, and everything was, uh, was passed on by rote learning. And uh, Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant for the last 25 years of the, of the Buddha's teaching career, uh, he had perfect recall. And when, he, when the Buddha invited him to be his attendant, Ananda um, made the request, he said, can you re re repeat to me everything that you say to anybody else, any teaching that you give, if I'm not in the room, if I'm not there, can you, can you repeat it to me afterwards? And so it said that Ananda had memorized you know, all of the Buddha's teachings. And so what you have in the Pali Canon 
the Pali scriptures is um, uh, mostly uh, the uh, the words of the Buddha. Um, about ninety-five percent of the Buddha's teachings. So, as they say, out of um, eighty-four thousand sections of of Dhamma teachings, eighty-two thousand were given by the Buddha. Fifteen hundred were given by other monastics, and five hundred were given by lay people. And so. Um, that was all passed on by rote learning. So that's why there's a, a very repetitive quality to a lot of the Pali scriptures. And it's because it's much easier to remember than, than a lot of poetic variation. So it's very unflowery and repetitive because it was passed on by rote. And then according to the, the histories, when they were in, uh, in Sri Lanka in about 73 before the Common Era, there was war, there was an invasion, and there was a famine. And so that the king um, made a, a, a request or a command <laughs> for the Sangha to actually write down the scriptures, write down the teachings, and they hadn't been written down systematically before. So in a place called the Aloka Vihara, which means the, the, uh, the abode of light, uh, then during this one period, um, then they, they committed all of the... Uh, the the memorized teachings to um, palm leaf manuscripts and so from that time on about 70 years before the common era then it was written down and passed on um, so it was the same form a repetitious form was there but it was uh, and they, they they wrote it down and so the um, the the tradition of learning the the, the verses and passing and chanting and passing them on in that way still persists but mostly it's through uh, through writing and because uh, Ananda had perfect recall he remembered all of the the, the teachings and then uh, Venerable Upali was the one who memorized all of the, the monastic rules so the Vinaya scriptures were passed on by Venerable Upali so when uh, if you look at the, the, the Pali canon most of the a large number of the, the suttas begin thus have I heard that's Ananda speaking so very different from the Bible, which is supposed to be the sort of the, the word of God, you know, or, or the the Quran, the sort of the the word from above, you know, inscribed you know, as it was spoken. What you have in the Pali is this is what Ananda remembers. Thus have I heard. So it it, it uh, again it puts it into a very um, uh, a, a different framework. Like this is what Ananda remembers, rather than this is the absolute truth that you should believe, but. This is how Ananda remembered it. It's like this. So, any other questions, please, today? Yes, if you can use the microphone. If you slide the switch upwards. Oh, hello. Um my wife and I did a spell in Tibetan Buddhism and they have a lovely little adage that says if you can change your conditions then change them and if you can't change your conditions then just accept things as they are and, and really it's a common sense idea of with Buddhism you, you use your common sense and if, these, if you're born into poverty then you accept that and you try and be happy and if you're rich with lots of problems you say well this is a, this is a curse I have to live with <laughs> and I'll try and live like poor people 
I, I don't know if that contributes, but thank you for listening. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. It's a. That's a. The. Um, yeah. Buddhism is very much based on common common sense, and that uh, uh, if we can change the the conditions of, of our life or of our our health and and living situation to to be more convenient, to be more helpful, be more beneficial for ourselves and others, great. But the things that are beyond our capacity to change, then the uh, that's where the uh, the quality of attitude comes in. So the aspects of the eightfold path, like right, sama vacha, sama kamanto, sama ajivo, so speech and action and work that's in accordance with with reality, with dhamma. Then if you're following those principles, then you're you're working to create less trouble for yourself if you're living in a skillful way and speaking and acting and working in a skillful way as possible you're you're trying to you're doing what you can to create a beneficial situation but uh, beyond a certain limit it's out, it's out of personal control just like not, no doctor can heal every illness yeah, and as Lumpucha would say even the doctors die one day <laughs> so that uh, you you do what you can to make things better, but also at the same time recognizing that we all have a there's a limit of capacity that we all have. That you had a question. If you can use the microphone. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was thinking about what you were saying in terms of there is the suffering, or there is the first arrow, and then there is the attitude um, that we take, which is what creates the suffering, actually. Um, Indeed, yes. And I was thinking about how um, it can be that somebody can have perhaps quite a lot of meditative experience, um, yet uh, perhaps due to you know layers of perhaps complex trauma, they may in lay down in their physiology there may be like levels of reactivity or anger or sort of delusive states as well um and i i guess i was just wondering whether you you mentioned something about um just occupying the other states more but the as in the the beneficial states mm -hmm. the um but I just maybe I'm not making much sense, but I guess I'm curious as to whether you have anything to say about that in terms of so somebody's intention is good to meditate and um, do good, but then there is this sort of physiologically laid down like conditioned, mm -hmm. you know, tra trauma that uh, leads to maybe harshness or you know angry states or outbursts. That kind of thing. Yeah, I would say it's not just physiological conditioning. I think it's a mixture of psychological and physiological. They, 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 there's an interplay between those two. But certainly, people can have a lot of of meditative experience, be quite um, skilled in in meditation, and or knowledgeable, uh, or both, uh, but yet have various levels of uh, unresolved. Uh, trauma or attachment identification. Yeah, there's there's defilements that the yeah 
even highly evolved beings have like uh, you know anagamis or sakadagami like those are you know, once returners or non-returners of these high levels of, of realization they can still have conceit and, and uh, levels of attachment um, in one of the scriptures from the, the northern buddhist tradition um, called the shurangama sutra the, the last chapter, the last section is called the 50 skanda demon states. And it, uh, for each of the five uh, aggregates, the five khandas, there's like 10 different obstacles or, or challenges that uh, are assigned to each of those five. And the ones, that, and they, they, they're in a kind of a spectrum. And so the most refined ones in the, the relating to the vijnana khanda, the, the consciousness uh, group, they're, they're kind of the problems that uh, that non you know, once returners and non returners have that uh, they can still meet with with obstacles. Say like um, someone who is an anagami, a, a non returner, they might have lots and lots of disciples, or they might be have a reputation as being incredibly wise, and they might really relish the fact that they are admired, or they're, they're proud of the fact that they've got lots of people coming along to their teachings, or they they have very wealthy supporters who want to build meditation centers for them and so on. And it, uh, uh, it says, you know, this is uh, something the mind can be prone to. So even as there's a genuine high level of realization, there can be that, hmm, oh, lots of people came today, hmm, <laughs> that relishing. And, and it's a very, very useful sutra because uh, I find... And it's, it's, it's closely based on a number of the suttas from the Pali and principles like the defilements of insight, the vipassana upakilesa, and what they call sanya vipalasa, the, the wrong grasping of perceptions, which talk about similar uh, delusions or difficulties that arise from meditation and spiritual development. So it's, it's, it's a different way of framing a lot of those same conditions. But in the Shurangama Sutra, there's this phrase that's repeated over and over, which is, if they know it's a state, it's a good state. If they don't know it's a state, they are bound to fall. So if you see that, that ooh, look, lots of people came today, mm, yes. And if the mind recognizes, well, that's, that's, that's an inflated attitude, then it doesn't have any bad result. It's not being given a landing place. If it says, lots of people came today, I'm getting really famous. And, and then the mind is buying into that, it's got a landing place, and then the dukkha will follow. So, uh, and th those, um, the defilements of insight, if you, like in, the, uh, in the classical text, when they talk about them, it's effects that arise from meditation that, that seem to be quite exalted, like all-encompassing knowledge, unremitting mindfulness, uh, unremitting energy. Um, so, well, that all sounds good. The mind filled with, with blazing light. It's like, well, that all sounds pretty good. <laughs> but because uh, the, the, the way it's being held, the, again, the attitude is the key, that the, the mind is relishing or buying into those states and it gets really lost in them. So sometimes as a result of meditation, someone can be have a lot of skill in meditation, but be um, uh, really just lo uh, lost touch with the, the material world and the people around them. And so they get into a kind of hyper, a hyperactive state and they, they, f they stop eating and stop sleeping and, and it's kind of drifting into a, an area of psychosis. And, and uh, so it becomes very unhelpful and, uh, and obstructive. So that um, 
the uh, that quality of attitude, <laughs> how the mind is holding the particular experiences or levels of of, of realization and such like that's that's always the the key. And that um, if there is any kind of uh, powerful realization or meditation experience, or, or then as long as the mind is holding that in in a, a context of of anicca dukkha anatta, you know, uh, of it's a, it's unstable, it's uncertain, it's a unsatisfactory in and of itself, and it's not who and what I am, then that helps the, the those states to be integrated and to develop in a in a good way. As soon as the mind grasps. <laughs> And take and and clings to a state, then the fall is bound to be the result. So I hope that's helpful. So, okay, one from him, and there may be a question from this side. Everyone here is free of doubts on the <laughs> on the south side of the temple is completely beyond beyond doubt. Um, thanks. He's, yeah, go ahead. Uh, sort of related question. Um, so if there was, wasn't terms like trauma or depression or psychosis in the Buddha's time, can all those things in Buddhist understanding come under an umbrella term of delusion? Um, there's a yeah, good question. There's a, um, some parallels. Some are, some are sort of woven from the... Um, the sort of Western psychology. It's, it's interesting that Freud used the word uh, ego as um, in a very similar way that the, the Buddha used the word atta. It's like ego in Latin means I am. So it's it's not like a real permanent personal self. But uh, as I understand, what Freud meant was this is the I am feeling. Probably there's a few psychologists here who can correct me, but in the dim distant past I did do a degree in psychology, but it's a long time ago. Um, but yeah, so that Freud used ego, or the ego, uh, as referring to the I am feeling, not as a sort of an absolute permanent sort of independent entity, but the, the I feeling, which is very close to the Buddha using the word atta, like it's the I feeling. Um, Etang mama eso hamasmi eso meata. This is uh, this is mine. This is what I am. This is myself. Is that the, the self feeling? Um, depression. Uh, I, again, there's, there's some resonances, not exact parallels. Uh, I would hesitate to to say they're, they're exactly. But the word domanasa is painful mental feeling, and so that um, using. Um, um, meditation to work with with depression in, in the Western psychological language, in Pali it would be learning to work with domanasa, that uh, the that painful mental feeling. Somanasa is pleasant mental feeling, so it's um, there is a, 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 a relatedness, but I wouldn't say it's exactly the same. In terms of psychosis, again, it depends exactly how you define that in Western terms, but certainly. Um, like there's in the in the Pali uh, references, people being crazy. There's lots of people being crazy, <laughs> in various ways. And that the Vinaya Pitaka, the the, the monastic rule, um, there's quite a number of, of rules uh, um, were formulated, or, or the incidents happened, where nuns or monks 
had you know, had gotten in, drawn into psychotic states or, or, or very seriously deluded states, uh, they would all come under the sort of delusion sort of category, based as the broad the broadest possible category. But um, so there were various behaviours that monks or nuns carried out. But then when it's brought to the Buddha and he makes a sort of a decision on it, he said, well, this person was in a state of madness so that they, they, there's no blame. And, and at the end of the vast majority of the rules in the, what's called the Vibhanga, the, the, um, the kind of compendium of monastic rules, which has got you know, thousands and thousands of rules in, what, what defines uh, a precept having been broken it's like if they were if they were insane or if they were the first wrongdoer, then it's not an offence. Like if you're the person who carried out an action and you were the first person to do it, and there wasn't a rule against it, then there's no blame. But um, if someone later on carries out that action, if it's judged that oh, you know, she was uh, she was insane at the time, or he was insane at the time, he wasn't in control of his faculties, then there's no fault. So. Um, that incidence of, of being drawn into seriously deluded states uh, was commonly recognized. Whether you could, how many you could actually categorize as psychosis, I, I would hesitate to add, but the Vinaya Pitaka in particular has got quite a number of those um, instances where people have, you know, behave in, in ways that are, we would call um, insane or, or in a psychotic state or a, a psychologically deranged or. Uh, a state where, you know, like, let's like in in the law of most countries, if someone's recognised as having, um, uh, you know, they were in a, a deluded state, they were having some kind of psychotic episode, then they might be treated in a hospital rather than being sent to prison because they weren't they weren't responsible for their actions. They had no idea what they were doing, and there was there was no personal control. They were sort of drawn into a difficult state. So certainly, the, those kind of events occur in the. In the Pali Canon, and, uh, and yeah, and it would all—all all of that would be under the moha delusion, yeah, so the mind dominated by moha. Does that cover all of the? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of parallels, but uh, the languaging is is a bit different. How things are defined is a, is a bit different. So, any questions from this side? To, I mean, intimidate, yes, very good. Sorry to intimidate you all. <laughs> so, so oh. yes, it's on. It sounds, it's on. So, yes. um, when you speak about delusion, I've discovered that, um, well, discovered, I'm aware that um, there is awareness. That um, when I look, think back to the way I used to think, uh, I think of Hiri and Otapa, um, but as an ex-Catholic, I kind of shy away from shame. But I feel <coughs> acutely embarrassed some, when I think back to the way I used to think about things. And I have a kind of forward embarrassment, because <laughs> I know I'm going to realise one day about me now. A preemptive embarrassment. Exactly. And I'd welcome your comments <laughs> and how that links to Hiri and Otapa. Thank you. That's that's a novel. Uh, that's a new item in the in the lexicon of preemptive embarrassment. I'm sure I will be embarrassed about things. Uh, 
in the future that I'm not embarrassed about yet. But, well, it does dis display quite a lot of humility. And, uh, so it, you know, it's a um, uh, Hiri and Otapa, uh, which are like the sense of conscience or honor. Um, and also, uh, Hiri means uh, like conscience or that sense of, of, of uh, right and wrong, um, conscience. And then Otapa is defined sometimes as the, um, the wise fear of consequences, or sometimes it's defined as the off-putting quality of seeing unskillfulness outside yourself. So seeing somebody else getting angry uh, or, uh, or behaving in a way that's conceited or greedy, the kind of, ooh, that, that sometimes Otapa is defined as that off-putting quality of unskillfulness outside so there's different ways that it's defined. But both Hiri and Otapa, they are, are, in a way, their moral sensitivity. And they work like physical pain. They work by being uncomfortable. That's how pain, physical pain does its job. It, it protects the body by being unpleasant. So the, you've damaged uh, your hand by, with a, by burning a finger. So then you, it hurts, so you look after that finger, you protect the injury so it won't get infected or you'll, you'll, you'll be careful. So that's how pain does its job. And pain, physiologically, is the most rudimentary kind of ner nerve ending and the uh, most basic, in an evolutionary sense, the most simple kind of living creatures, pain is one of the first things they develop because that's what protects you. Yeah, uh, those who don't feel, didn't feel much pain or don't feel much pain, they get a lot of injuries, a lot of infections, and they, they don't, the, the health is compromised much more easily. So pain does its job by being unpleasant. Hiri and Otapa, similarly, they do their job by being an unpleasant emotional state. So they're, they're painful emotional states. And so, um, uh, you know, as uh, a, a, someone who's formerly a Catholic uh, in, in the States, uh, I'd learned a phrase from someone who's from a, a Polish family, a, a Polish Catholic family, that they said that they say you can take the girl out of the church, but you can't take the church out of the girl. And then a few Irish people said, "We said that too." <laughs> there was a wide agreement within the Catholic field. That was a common, a common phrase. Um, so, uh, but it's talking about the power of conditioning, and so if we can tease apart the the, the selfing element, then you know, here in Otapa, that sense of regret when we're thinking back to things that we, that our own actions, our own choices that have had painful consequences, it's painful to remember, but that pain doesn't have to be turned into a personal possession or who and what we are. It's just here's the cause, here's the effect. Ow. That's it. Um, it's, like, it's, like, it's a natural process. We don't have to take it personally. So that's very difficult to do when you have like a lifetime of conditioning. But in essence, with, with uh, using wise reflection and mindfulness, we, the, the mind can be trained to reshape the, way, the attitude in that way. That Yes, looking at that, that was unskillful action and it's got a painful result. If somebody else had done that, I would feel the same way. That was stupid to do. <laughs> that was got my name on it. It was stupid. Here's the painful result. That's it. Don't have to add, you're not pretending that it was good or it was right or, or worthwhile, but it was a foolish mistake and here's the result. Uh, it's painful. 
And so then it's much easier to learn from the painful results of those actions if it isn't tangled up with me, I should, I shouldn't, I am, you know, I don't want to be. And so that um, the, the more that the self element is let go of, and then Hiri and Otapa can be seen as, as spiritual strengths, which is what they are. Like in, in, in Buddhist psychology, the more spiritual, uh, spiritually developed somebody is, the stronger Hiri and Otapa are. You don't get more kind of blasé, but it's, it's, <laughs> it gets more and more painful if anything that's unskillful is done. It's like, and so, uh, or more and more kind of off-putting. And so it said, in one particular pair of teachings, when the Buddha's talking to uh, some wanderers from, uh, from different spiritual groups, and he's talk they're asking him about what's in the nature of an arahant, how, do they, how does an arahant live, or what are the attitudes of an arahant, or how do they behave? You know, the Buddha says, an arahant is incapable of deliberately taking the life of another being. They, they can't do it. The hand cannot move. To, to to squash the mosquito or the that that action can't be taken the the tongue cannot form a lie it's like the, it, it won't the, the speech just won't go there that there it's not they're following a rule and they're keeping it it's just like they can't do that which I, I feel is a very very interesting um, understanding of the precepts it's rather than sort of moral prohibitions coming from on high but rather if your heart is truly uh, awake and in, in tune with its own reality and the reality of all things then it's impossible to tell a lie it's impossible to to take the life of another living being that uh, that that's the natural disposition of the awakened heart so the precepts are a way of establishing the behavior so to to in encourage the uh, the, in a way, the, the development of the heart to, to match that. It's like you're adopting the behavior. And, and the Buddha also says that in, in other teachings. He says, um, by keeping the eight precepts uh, uh, on the observance days, that then lay people are, quote-unquote, living as the arahants do, and that it will be there for their long-lasting benefit and happiness. So it's, it's a very different way of looking at do's and don'ts. <laughs> That the more your your heart is is awake and attuned to reality, then there's no interest or ability to hurt any anybody. There's no you can't tell a lie. You're not interested in distraction or indulgence and and so on and so forth. There's just there's no movement in that direction. So uh, that then um, is a way of changing the perception of morality and the the sense of sin or um, I'm, a, I'm a bad person or um, and then uh, your preemptive um, embarrassment <laughs> that what you might feel of, uh, embarrassed about what you uh, in the future how you do things now I'd say well uh, do the do the best uh, the, that is possible to do in taking the self element out of that so in recognizing, well, when this moment is looked back upon, there might be some ways that it can be seen, oh, that, that, that could have been done better or that, that that's had an unfortunate result. Okay. And then that can be learned from, but it doesn't have to be turned into who and what you are. It's always the, the I, me, mine element that is 
the, the troublemaker. In, in the, I mentioned Megia and the Buddha's dialogue with Megia. Um, when Megia went off to meditate by himself and got caught up in all kinds of uh, uh, trouble and confusion. Um, when, the, when he came back to the Buddha at the end of that day and the Buddha gave him advice, one of um, the, 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 the end of the, the teaching that the Buddha gave him, the, uh, the words he said were um, uh, to, um, to develop the, the, um, the insight into impermanence, to uncertainty, into anicca, that leads to the realization of not-self. And then he says, and the, the ending of the conceit I am, that, that full development of the insight into anatta, the ending of asmimana, conceit of I am, so that is nibbana here and now. So the, in terms of practicing with these kind of things, then bringing the attention to how much I, me, and mine is woven in, and then making the effort to let go, let go to, to, to release, to, to loosen to uh, the, the attitude around self. And, you know, when one of the simple techniques, again, I, and this is somewhat borrowed from Gestalt therapy, going back to Western psychology, uh, where they call it, what they call it the, uh, the two-chair practice. So that uh, and, uh, I, and, uh, I was at Esalen Institute in California where someone was describing this to me. And so they, they, this is a Gestalt therapy method where they have, you have two chairs and you sit in one chair and then you imagine the person you have conflict with or you have regrets about or you're irritated by. And then um, it's as if you're talking to that other person and you, you tell them exactly what you think or you say, uh, you, uh, you uh, apologize for the, what you've done, how you, how you hurt them and so forth. And then after you've done, said your piece, you get up and you go and sit in the other chair and then you let the other person speak. So the, the, the person who was describing this to me, um, just to share a little story, so she had t- tremendous feelings of guilt because uh, she, the fellow she'd been married to was the father of their, their son. He was uh, uh, a, a very um, uh, a desperate alcoholic. He was, uh, he was a very, very heavy drinker. And she was a very kind person, very forgiving, but eventually uh, things got too much and she said, we can't carry on. And so she said, you, you can't live with us anymore. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's terrible for our child. So she, uh, she made him uh, leave the home. And uh, the son was about nine years old at this time. And so then the, the, the father was drunk and driving and crashed the car and died in a car crash in a drunk state. And so then she felt terrible. Like I, I kicked, I, quote unquote, I kicked him out, and then he crashed, had this car crash when he was drunk, and, and he died, and it's my fault. And so she would, was said she was carrying this around for years and years and years, and she when she was uh, introduced to this this particular method, the, the two chairs, and uh, she was very suspicious. Like this doesn't sound. This is this is definitely California Dharma. This is this is very hokey, this is never going to work. You know. So part of her mind was very sceptical. So she, she sat down in her chair and she said, I'm terribly, as, as if her son was in the chair opposite. It's empty. You know, he's, 
So she then says to her imagined son, I can't apologize enough. It was because of me. Uh, I, I got uh, impatient with your dad and kicked him out, and he got drunk and crashed and died in a car crash. And so from the age of nine, you didn't have a father, and uh, well, I can't bring him back. And I feel terrible that uh, you had to grow up without a dad because of me. And then she says, did that whole piece? And, uh, yeah, and I'm, uh, so I'm sorry if this is uh, difficult to for any people to hear, but I, I feel it's a very useful story. So then she got up from her chair and sat in his chair. And then she said, I hardly even sat down. I, 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 I scarcely had I sat down. And then this voice appeared from me saying, what are you talking about, Mum? It wasn't your fault. Dad was drunk. Yeah. And it was, it was his doing. It wasn't anything to do with you. He's responsible, not you. Don't, don't beat yourself up. And she, said, and she said, she heard her own voice saying these words like, so part of our brain is going, this can't be happening. <laughs> this, is, this sort of thing doesn't work. But it did. And that she, uh, she, in a way, there was a method that helped to open her up to kind of what she already knew underneath, but because of the surface level criticism and, and guilt and, and self-aversion, uh, her own intuition, that fact it really wasn't her responsibility, and that she should forgive herself, it was... In the system, it was sort of below the surface, and this this particular technique helped to bring that out. And so, we can use that in a pocket version in in the meditation. So, if uh, if Pat was your friend, and she came to you and said, "I'm a terrible person. You know, I've done all this stuff, which is completely unforgivable," and and uh, and so, and it's because I've done this, 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 and this. You know, I'm a horrible person. And then, if your friend Pat came to you and said that, then what's your immediate feeling? And every time it's forgiveness, compassion, don't be so foolish, you're fine, you're a really lovely person. Instantaneously, I'm not reading your mind, but I would say, instantaneously, the heart goes to, don't be so hard on yourself, uh, it goes to compassion, kindness, forgiveness, every time. And I've described that practice for to people for more than 30 years. And every single, no one has ever said, well, actually, what comes to mind is, yeah, you're really out of order. And I was being meaning to tell you for a long time, you know, you're really, <laughs> no, it's never the case. It's always that immediately, without a second thought, goes to compassion and forgiveness. And so that's the clue. If she was your friend, you would be instantaneously, without a second thought, forgiving. So. <laughs> Translate that back and say, okay, let's, and, and also using the teachings on not self, let's bring that back home and say, okay, what does that say about the attitudes that I've been carrying around about how awful, how unforgivable, how terrible, and so on? And you can much more easily find that place of natural compassion and forgiveness in your own heart. So I hope it's okay to share that, but I do feel it's very useful advice and. Uh, very effective way of rejigging one's attitudes. So sometimes Buddhism can borrow from Western psychology too. So I see four o'clock has come around, so I think that's enough for today. Uh, next weekend, um, I'll be also offering another teaching um, on self-sabotage. Self-sabotage, not how to self-sabotage. <laughs> Maybe, you know, pick up some tips. 
it's effective self-sabotage for beginners. But uh, that, that'll be the theme for next week. So. Please uh, have a good day.